Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tanya Wright at the Penn State College of Medicine, Hershey Medical Center. This podcast is designed for medical students that are currently on their OB-GYN rotation and was created to cover the APGO learning objectives. However, many of you guys, as well as the medical students at our institution, have been displaced because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have therefore decided to take this opportunity to cover the COVID-19 pandemic in some detail. In the first series of this podcast, we did cover the basics and things that students and residents should know with respect to coronavirus and pregnancy. It is our goal with this second episode to really establish what we have learned thus far about COVID-19 and pregnancy, as well as a historical context with respect to other coronaviruses that have affected us globally in the past. I have invited my husband, Dr. Tu Wright, back to be with us again today to ask me some questions and to work through some of the, the current literature that we have on coronavirus and pregnancy. So, Dr. Wright, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me back. Um, this had me um, thinking back to my time in medical school um, and my clinical rotations. I did enjoy my time doing my rotation in, in OB-GYN. I, I really did appreciate the algorithm-based approach to every everything that uh, OB-GYNs do. Uh, but I must say, as most of my friends know, I never had a chance to, to deliver a baby. I'd be involved through and through for each case, but when it came time for delivery, I always got kicked out of the room. Oh, that's so sad. Um, so this is my opportunity to relive my OB-GYN time again. Um, so today I will be I will attempt to put on my medical student hat once again and try to come up with questions that a medical student who is not far removed from the basic sciences preparing for or in the midst of clinical rotations or perhaps preparing for standardized exam would want to know about the COVID-19 pandemic that is ongoing. Uh, with that said, we will review the data uh, from, uh, I think uh, we're planning to go through the three coronavirus-related uh, epidemics um, that have w within the past few decades from 2002 to now um, and, and, and learn from that about how we can better manage pregnant patients. So with that said, um, can you give us an overview of these outbreaks, the time periods, and the people who are affected? Yes. So... There are three known human coronaviruses that are highly pathogenic and that can cause severe acute illnesses. And we've learned these from the three outbreaks that have happened historically. The first of those was actually the SARS-CoV, or the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS for short, which was initially reported back in 2003 in Guangdong province of China. This resulted in 8,000 cases and with 770 deaths, and there have been no cases since 2004. The case fatality ratio of that outbreak was 9 to 10%. And then there was the MERS-CoV virus, or the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. MERS was first identified in Saudi Arabia back in 2012, but spread to other countries in the Arabian Peninsula and then ultimately outside to other countries like Korea and even to the U.S. There were 2,500 cases and 860 deaths with a case fatality ratio of 35 to 40%. And then finally, there's the ongoing SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19. 
This started in Wuhan, China in December of 2019, and to date, there have been 32 documented cases affecting pregnancies. Otherwise, it continues to have new cases globally every single day, and the elderly and immune compromised are thought to be the most vulnerable. So what have we learned about the effects of uh, this class of viruses on uh, in, in pregnancy, specifically the first trimester of pregnancy? Great question. So the first trimester is from the very beginning of pregnancy all the way up to 13 weeks, six days. So information on SARS and MERS among pregnant women is very, very limited. After a review of the literature, the largest case series for SARS from 2003 was only 12 pregnant women, and those were patients from Hong Kong. For MERS, there were 13 cases documented, but over several countries. And with the current ongoing SARS-CoV global pandemic, to date, there are only 32 documented cases. So the data is very sparse. We have to rely on the history of similar viruses that are highly pathogenic, such as the SARS and the MERS, to get a sense of what we can expect in this ongoing pandemic. There is currently no data on the first trimester in COVID-19 infection since all the reports of the women that are documented were either in the late second trimester and mostly in the third trimester, actually. This is certainly an area for updated, for updated studies. In SARS, four out of the seven patients experienced first trimester early pregnancy loss or miscarriages. And in MERS, there was a single case in the first trimester, but the patient did well and had a full-term uncomplicated delivery. So it'll be interesting to see once we get more data on how coronavirus COVID-19 behaves in the first trimester, if the outcomes will be similar to that of SARS, where there was a very high rate of early pregnancy loss. My understanding is that the um, the SARS-CoV-2, which is the one causing the current pandemic, is most similar to genetically. The genome is about 70 to 80 percent concordant with the first initial SARS uh, virus, and then about 50 percent, the genome is about 50 percent similar to the MERS-CoV. So um, it is perhaps likely that it will behave more like the the first SARS outbreak rather than the, um, perhaps than the second, but we'll find out as we go along. Well, a lot of women may not even know that they are pregnant during the first trimester. What can you tell us about what may happen to the fetus? What are the spontaneous abortion rates of infected women? So Atu, I wish I had the answer to this so that we could offer reassurance to women that are in the first trimester or who are planning to become pregnant during this time or who are found to be incidentally pregnant after presenting as a person under investigation or actually a COVID positive patient. If we look at case reports from SARS from 2003, we may be able to extrapolate from that some of those outcomes. We do know that there is genetic similarity between SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 a 79% or so genetic concordance. So if we look at the data from the SARS-CoV-1 outbreak, among seven women who became ill in the first trimester, four of them had spontaneous early losses and two had pregnancy termination for social reasons and then one delivered as a full-term healthy infant. 
So this does seem overall quite high for a rate of spontaneous loss. You know, we typically will estimate in the general population a rate of early pregnancy loss of about 10 to 20 percent. What can we expect from women who are a bit farther along with their pregnancies, um, second, perhaps the second and third trimester? So to answer this question, let's take again a look at the historic context. So during the SARS 2003 outbreak, among the five women that presented after 24 weeks, four of them delivered preterm at 26, 28, and 32 weeks and did have some complications that could potentially be explained by prematurity, so like your neck and your um, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. The other two women delivered after they had recovered from SARS, and those pregnancies were complicated by intrauterine growth restriction. In one matched case control study that compared 10 pregnant women to 40 non-pregnant women with SARS, the pregnancy appeared to have no effect on clinical symptoms or time to presentation after symptom onset. However, complications and adverse outcomes were more common among pregnant women, such as renal failure, sepsis, DIC, ICU admission, and 40% required mechanical ventilation, and pregnant women were more significantly at risk for death. So then let's look at the MERS outbreak. So there were 13 pregnancy reports. Two women were asymptomatic, and then the other 11 women were symptomatic patients. Seven women were admitted to the ICU for respiratory deterioration, or ARDS, and ultimately three of those women died and eight of those women recovered fully. The babies born to asymptomatic mothers did well, but those born to symptomatic patients resulted in one failed demise at 19 weeks and one demise at 34 weeks. So let's now see how these findings compare to what we've seen in COVID-19 thus far. To do this, I wanted to take a look at the Chen et al. study from 2020 as referenced in the notes below. The goals of this study was to assess whether pregnant women with COVID-19 pneumonia developed any distinct symptoms from non-pregnant adults. Also, to determine whether pregnant women who had confirmed COVID-19 pneumonia were more likely to die of the infection or to undergo preterm labor. And then finally, to assess whether COVID-19 could spread vertically and pose a risk to the fetus and the neonate. This was a retrospective study that looked at data from COVID-19 confirmed patients in nine pregnant women who did develop pneumonia at the Wuhan University Hospital from January 20th to January 31st in 2020. They actually collected samples of amniotic fluid, cord blood, neonatal throat swabs, and breast milk samples out of six of the nine patients. All nine patients of note were diagnosed in the third trimester. They were all somewhere between 36 and 39 weeks pregnant. None of them had any underlying medical problems like diabetes, chronic hypertension, or cardiovascular disease. What they found was that the clinical presentation of these patients were similar to that in non-pregnant adults. So they had that classic lymphopenia, the ground glass opacities in the lungs, fevers pre and or postpartum. All of these patients required supplemental oxygen, but none of them actually required mechanical ventilation. All of the babies were born alive with APGARs of 8 or 9 at 1 minute, 9, at 10, 9 or 10 at 5 minutes. And so we concluded from this study that there was actually no evidence of vertical transmission. As we know, um, ACE2, the receptor which we learned is uh, the 
binding site for the S protein on the virus is also located in the placental tissue. Um, does this have any implications on vertical transmission of the virus to the baby and infection of the newborn? What can we, what have we learned thus far? We have reviewed the data from the Chen et al. study, which did not reveal any evidence of intramniotic or vertical transmission to the neonate. When looking at the Zhu et al. from 2020 study, which is referenced in the notes here, the goal of this study was to examine the clinical features of 10 neonates, including one twin delivery, born to nine mothers, who had confirmed COVID-19 infection in five hospitals from January 20th to February 5th in Wuhan, China. The neonates born to all of these mothers in the study who had lab-confirmed COVID-19 were evaluated after delivery. These patients had symptoms either before delivery in four cases, on the day of delivery in two cases, or post-delivery post in three cases, and these cases were all in the third trimester. Fetal distress was noted in six of the fetuses, and all were delivered by C-section except for two of those cases. Six out of the nine deliveries occurred preterm. Again, in this study, pharyngeal swab specimens were collected from nine out of the 10 neonates one to nine days after birth for nucleic acid amplification tests for COVID-19. However, all of these test results were negative for COVID-19. Clinically, on the other hand, these neonates, many of them presented with symptoms. So that in six neonates, they had shortness of breath, um, two of them had fevers, there was thrombocytopenia and abnormal liver function tests in two patients, a rapid heart rate in one patient, vomiting noted in one neonate, and a pneumothorax noted in another. There was even one neonatal death. So the conclusion of this study was that perinatal COVID-19 may have adverse effects on newborns, causing problems such as fetal distress, premature labor, respiratory distress, thrombocytopenia, accompanied by abnormal liver function tests, and even death. However, there was no evidence to support vertical transmission based on these case reports. So one of the most special moments in my life, actually two, were the, being able to deliver my two my two um, sons, um, for all the new mothers and fathers who have to um, deliver babies during this time period, who have to consider some of these modalities that can potentially cause an infection. I, I don't. I don't even know what to think about that. But what is the best modality uh, to deliver a potentially viable baby for, for a COVID nineteen positive mother? With respect to modality of delivery vaginal delivery versus delivery by cesarean section, there's no evidence currently that supports the risk of vertical transmission. As such, C-section delivery is not something that is recommended. According to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the mode of delivery should be determined based on the patient's clinical presentation. ACOG also supports that the timing of delivery should not be impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Just to be clear, changes in fetal heart rate patterns can happen in patients that have respiratory deterioration, and therefore that may determine that a patient has to be delivered more expeditiously via emergent C-section. 
From the Chenetel study, we know that all of those patients were delivered by C-section, mostly because of the unclear data on whether the patients and neonates were at risk for intramniotic or vertical transmission. So with no reliable evidence that there is a possibility of vertical transmission, COVID-19 patients are not exclusively recommended to be delivered by cesarean section. What are some of the implications for pregnant healthcare workers? Because I'm sure uh, there could be colleagues um, around the world who are pregnant and having to work uh, during this time period. Yes, we are very grateful for all of our colleagues really around the world that are working towards helping us to combat this pandemic, but specifically for healthcare workers that are pregnant, because there's a lot that we don't know. Um, As of now, ACOG supports the CDC's position on this topic, which is that since there is no evidence that pregnant women are necessarily at a higher risk of COVID-19, there should be no additional recommendations or restrictions for those individuals. Um, But this data is very limiting, and so we should use our clinical judgment. For example, in departments where there are pregnant healthcare workers, they may choose to limit their interactions with patients that are persons under investigation or patients that are actually known to be COVID-19 positive. Um, whatever the case, all pregnant women should be, um, like all other healthcare providers, wearing PPE, so inks are face masks, eye protection, gowns, gloves, N95 masks, um, etc., there is one fact that we do know to be true, which is all healthcare workers, regardless of their pregnancy status, are at higher risk of contracting this disease. And so all necessary precautions should be taken. Are there any signs or symptoms at the time of presentation that may be associated with poor outcomes? Yes, that's a great question. So we know that the most prevalent non-obstetric infectious condition that occurs during pregnancy is pneumonia. And this is a very significant cause of morbidity and mortality among pregnant pregnant patients in general. About 25% of pregnant women who develop pneumonia in pregnancy will need to be hospitalized in an ICU setting and could potentially require some type of respiratory support or ventilatory support. A lot of this has to do with the normal maternal physiologic changes that happen in pregnancy that make them more susceptible, including the altered cell-mediated immunity and other changes to pulmonary function. Given that, patients that are infected with COVID-19 that are pregnant who present with pneumonia and require respiratory support or even mechanical ventilation are at risk for further respiratory decompensation, associated fetal heart rate abnormalities, and expedited delivery. In some cases, mechanical ventilation might not even be sufficient to support adequate oxygenation for the mom and the fetus. And some literature would suggest that there may be a potential role for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO in pregnancy. As we mentioned before, we are unsure if delivery in these settings actually provides a benefit to a critically ill mother. And so decisions on whether to deliver the fetus should be considered on a multidisciplinary approach, factoring the gestational age of the fetus, as well as the other clinical considerations. 
Atu, once again, it has been so awesome chatting with you. Thank you so much for being here. And although social distancing brought us to this, I appreciated you helping contribute to the OBG Medicine podcast today. It was actually a pleasure doing this, um, trying to be a medical student again. Um, all the best to all you medical students out there t- um, right now, having to have your coursework abbreviated. Um, I hope that you can get back to, ex- to the experience soon. Uh, many blessings to all of you. Thank you. <laughs>